Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hello, BTB buddies. Today's guest is a comic, a musician, and a musical comedian. He's been seen and heard on the Sundance Film Festival, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, on Sirius XM, and Bob and Tom Radio, as well as Amazon Prime. He's released multiple comedy specials and albums filled with his colorful, tightly written comedy. You can see him on stage slinging great misdirect jokes, singing a wonderfully comedic song, or gigging with a full band. It's Phil Johnson. Phil, how you doing? Hello, Scott. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. I got to do a deep dive and actually listen to you on a couple podcasts, so I know a little bit about you now. But <laughs> I really enjoyed the comedy first, and then I started listening to the musical stuff you do. And I got to say, I'm totally entranced with your voice. Uh, oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you have perfect pitch? Oh, God, no. Really? No. Okay. Uh no, oh no. In fact, I've had friends who have perfect pitch uh -huh. and they're they hate it. They absolutely hate it because the world is very out of tune. Yeah. And so uh for people who have true perfect pitch, hearing things that are out of tune is actually painful for them. Okay. And no, I don't have I don't I barely have relative pitch. Really? Okay. Uh, if you ask my girlfriend when I sing around the house, she's my God, would you please sing the right notes? <laughs> and that's my big secret as a singer. I'm a good singer if I'm singing my stuff, but right. it takes a lot of work to get there. Yeah, yeah, boy, it's you know, what I heard was really good. I thought it was a great voice. I thought I could put you in a really good, like, metal band, like, substitute you for <laughs> Rob Halford and just let you go. And I don't, th I, I think Rob has, they, they adjust the tunage to him instead of him sure. adjusting to them anyway over the sure, years. There's always those drop tunings and yeah. things like that. Like, Motley Crue was one of the first bands to start using those drop tunings to accommodate a singer because yeah. Vince Neil was always crap. And they would, they were dropping like their tunings a whole step to accommodate him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I've never had that kind of range. I have, I know where my range is. It's about an octave and a half and I work within, I work within my tool set. <laughs> uh -huh. I really, I really like it. So you must've started the musical stuff as a youngster then, huh? Yeah, I, I started playing. Well, here's how it started. When I was eight years old, they were offering music lessons in my elementary school. And my mom said, do you want to play music? And I was like, well, I don't know. And she said, look, girls like musicians. And I was like, all right, sign me up. Because uh, <laughs> she, she knew my motivations yeah. even at the age of eight. And she said, what do you want to play? And I said, I don't know. And they were offering the basic band instrument type of stuff. Uh -huh. And uh, she said, look, if you play the flute, you'll always be the only boy in the section. And uh, I was like, uh, cool, sign me up. Yeah. And all the way through college, uh, I was the only <laughs> guy flute player. Always never dated another flautist, which was odd, but yeah. I was the only guy in the flute <laughs> section. Met my best friend Dave in the clarinet section next to me. So I did get that out of it. But yeah, so I started playing the flute at eight, did state orchestra kind of stuff, all that type of thing. And then I picked up the piano, I think, when I was 
11 or 12 with a local teacher here near me. And, and then I picked up guitar when I was 16, stole my guitar from my dad who had played folk music back in the sixties. Mm-hmm. And he was a singer and things like that. And he had this old, gosh, was it a, a honer guitar? I don't know. Some oh, cheapo, they, it was a cheapo sixties F hole type of guitar. I think guitar, that was the I ones that it. made the harmonicas. And I think they made guitars for a little while. They did. Yeah. yeah. I think I have that name wrong now and I can't think of it, but yeah, yeah. he had this old sort of semi-hollow F-hole uh, yeah. acoustic guitar with action that was that far off of the uh. board. <laughs> and so I, and I, oh God, I wish I still had that guitar. I gave it to a girl, my girlfriend, my high school girlfriend's brother, like way back in the day, uh. I got it back. But uh, yeah, so I stole that and just started, got the Mel Bay method book and started teaching myself. Here's an E, here's an F, here's a G. And I already had two instruments under my belt by then and yeah. some and so the once you learn a couple of instruments learning more instruments isn't that difficult because right. it's just about learning the technique of that instrument everything else all the theory all the structural stuff it's mm. all the same and so that's why i've got so many different pieces of wooden strings hanging around me here in the studio and i'm a crap banjo player but it sits back uh-huh. there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if a track really needs it i can pick up a banjo so yeah i started playing guitar about 16 and that became my voice uh-huh. where it was like, I like flute, I like piano, I love guitar. That was it for me. Mm-hmm. My brother, who plays all the same instruments that I do, piano is his voice. Mm-hmm. He, he gravitated towards that. He's just as good at guitar and everything as I am. But guitar, I'm sorry, piano became his thing. So mm-hmm. that's what he does. So it's about finding your voice on the instrument and things right. like that. But yeah, and then I, all I ever wanted to be was the guitar player in a rock band. That was the dream. Yeah. I wanted to be I wanted to be Joe Perry. That was as far as I was dreaming. Yeah. Maybe a solo album once in 1978. <laughs> and that's all I need. I'll let some other guy do the real work up front. Right. Uh, and then it's, and now it is completely turned not that. <laughs> right. It's funny. It's funny how that works out. So knowing what you did about music and then picking up the guitar at 16, were you in a few bands at that time? Did you get to I, uh, get up on stage and do some stuff? I was the guy in high school that always said I was going to start a band uh-huh. and never actually got around to it. Uh-huh. And then when I went to college, I met a guy named Brandon and Brandon and I met because we were both dating the same girl. And my high school sweetheart, who was I was on the outs with and he was on the ins with and she introduced us. And at one point she had dated like four out of the five members of the band. We were just going to name the band after her. But yeah. she yeah, she introduced us and I sat down with Brandon. We said, let's start a band, man. And so this is how we started the band. I sat down and I said, OK, are we this kind of band? And I played like a Motley Crue kind of riff. And I said, or are we this kind of band? And I played like a Metallica riff. And he goes, uh-huh. the first one. And that's how we decided uh-huh. what we were going to do. <laughs> and so we went through a bunch of names. And we ended up with the name Roadside Attraction. Uh-huh. Uh, and so Roadside Attraction is still the name of the band. So I've technically only been in one band. But uh-huh. that band has been out of five different bands at this point where I've just cycled through people and people and I'm the only original member left and most of the guys that were in it don't play music anymore at all and I mostly I, I maintain it because it's a brand I maintain it because it's I have a trademark on it that mm-hmm. I fought long and hard for to, to keep the rights to and it, it, it gives me so it's there's this thing in the music industry of sort of these one man bands like Nine Inch Nails is really just trend right yeah there's another one that I, that I heard of recently I can't think of the name of it so it's just really one guy that gets signed to the label or yeah. whatever and then everybody else has hired guns and so that's how generally I work so I I mm. do have a band that I play with once every few years but in general I 
write, record, perform solo, and uh-huh. I do all, I do everything on my own and brand it now as Phil Johnson and Roadside Attraction since I need my own name actually out there too. Yeah, as a comedian, and things are all split up all over Spotify, and it starts to get <laughs> yes, starts to get ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> it seems like Roadside Attraction that would have been a really tough one to get the trademark on. Yeah, it was not because there was conflicts necessarily. The one thing they, the trademark patent office said, it's too common a term. You can't trademark a right. common term. Yeah, like you can't if you sell big boxes, you can't call your name, your company, big boxes, and expect to trademark that. Right. And so, at one point, my lawyer calls me and he goes, "Do you ever actually play next to the side of the road?" And uh-huh. I said, no. And he goes, all right, that should be enough for that. We've been an actual roadside attraction. We could not trademark the name roadside attraction, right. but because we play indoors, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> we're able to, we're able to have a trademark. And I have to send out cease and desist orders all the time. Cause for some reason, bands don't have the brains to go Google a band name right, still, right. Uh, and see if somebody else is using it. So I've had to shut down other bands from using it or guys who name their backing band that, or we do have a deal. There's a, like a corporate swing band in Seattle called roadside attraction. Uh-huh. And we do have a deal with them that they get to use it. Cause they started using it before we did. Cause we weren't that bright either. Yeah. And they are allowed to use it in that territory uh-huh. essentially. And I get to use it everywhere else. Oh. So yeah, yeah, the business part of it is... It, it's oh, it's always fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's always fun. So you said you were you went to college. What did you study when you went to college? Started in physics. Uh-huh. And because I was always a, a science kind of minded guy, I like that kind of stuff a lot. And when I failed calculus three again, uh-huh. I decided that maybe that wasn't the path for me. Yeah. And I had the strange thing at that, what I, my thought process was I'm going to school and I'm working on doing science and math. That's what I'm doing at school. Mm-hmm. As soon as I walked off the campus, I was doing, I was playing in a band, I was teaching music. I was, everything was music. I was mm-hmm. working in music. I was playing music. Everything was music. Except when I went to school, I was doing science and math. Yeah. And I thought maybe I should just, you know, jump in with both feet on this. And uh, so I switched over to a music major and they didn't like, I kind of, I didn't do it. I snuck into the department and started taking classes and they were like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm here. Yeah. Uh, and it, I'm supposed they were to be like, here. You, Did you take an entrance exam? No, here I can play. And uh, so I just snuck into the department and started taking classes. I said, I want to do a music business degree. They Uh said, we don't have that, but we're going to have it in a year and a half from now. So just keep taking classes. Mm -hmm. And then when we have that program, we'll put you in that program. And they never put that program together. Yeah. So <laughs> I was in college for way too long, playing guitar, playing flute in their orchestra, studying theory, uh-huh. studying composition, all that kind of stuff. And at one point, I walked into my counselor's office and I said, look, I'm done. I've been here a long time and I'm done. You can either give me a degree or I'm just going to leave because uh-huh. I'm, I'm tired of this. I need to get on with my life. And they were like, oh, but you're but you what? I said, no, I'm going to leave. And they're Uh like, okay, let's figure out what we can start waving. And they just started waving things. And uh, she said, you didn't do a senior recital yet. And I said, okay, fine. I said, I'll bring my band and we'll do a show in the concert hall and and be done with it. And she Uh was like, oh no, you're a jazz major. You have to do a jazz concert. And I said, look, I don't play jazz. I said, I can't Uh play jazz, but that's what I do in school. Outside of school, I'm playing rock, funk, blues, Latin, that kind of stuff. So Uh let me do what I'm doing for my recital. And she was like, okay, don't let it be too loud. My brother is a roadie for Boston, and he lost his hearing. Like, she actually said that to me. I was like, Jesus. And I took my band into this. And and the band was always very much into lots of different styles and melding them together, even like I do now. And Uh so we went into this 
hundred year old concert hall at San Jose State, and we set up for a rock concert. We brought in lights and the whole thing, and my professors made their students write up like a review project on uh-huh. my recital, mostly because my professors wanted to come and see the show. Yeah, <laughs> and it was so weird because we're on stage just rocking out like crazy, uh-huh. and there's students that are just like hmm, just looking <laughs> totally bored. Yeah, like if it had just been a show, they would have been having a great time. Right, but because they had to write a paper about it. <laughs> They were bored stiff, but my my professors wanted to see the show. And so at one point we're, we're performing, I don't know, we're doing something big, big rock thing. Uh-huh. And at the end of the, we hit the last note of the song and the lights go down. And I turned to my roadie and I went, great light cue. And he goes, uh-huh. I didn't do that. And I was like, what happened? Uh-huh. He goes, I don't know. And so I see my roadie and my dad go running off with extension cables and the lights come back up. And oh. I was like, what happened? They're like, we blew a fuse. I'm like, all right, are we good now? They're like, I think so. Yeah. And we started in the next song and the lights go off. Again. <laughs> <laughs> and I see them go running off with more extension cables. The lights come up. And I was like, maybe this is good. This is the time for the acoustic portion of the show. Yeah. <laughs> so we did the acoustic. We had two or three songs acoustic in the middle because I had to do that for requirements. Uh-huh. And then, uh, and then we, so the whole show, the lights come on and the lights go out and the lights come on and the lights go out. We just blew one fuse after another in this old concert hall. And the next day, I, I checked in with my counselor. She goes, okay, that was good. You did fine. And uh, she goes, uh, did you get all those electrical problems figured out? Because there's another recital in there tonight. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a musician, not an electrician. You have right. people for that. And it was, I was like, it's a percussion recital. They don't need electricity. Yeah. Who cares? And uh, so that's how I managed to get out. I put on a rock concert at school, and that's how I managed to get out of college with a degree. Oh, that's a great story. <laughs> so when did comedy come in then? Uh, much later. I it was I it was doing music for a good 10, 12 years, I think, uh-huh. just doing that. And I never had even considered comedy as, uh-huh. as a thing. I always was a fan. I loved watching yeah. it growing up. I could recite Robin Williams live at the Met word for word, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And I had split up with a version of my band. The guys were gone mm-hmm. and I was by myself and just cranking out ideas with my old four track. And a couple of the songs were goofy. They were funny ideas that the the other guys in the band never wanted to do. They were mm-hmm. too cool for that. Yeah. And so I, I was like, okay, these are stupid songs. Maybe I'll do, these will be like B-sides. I'll do regular A-sides. These will be like goofy B-sides, not mm-hmm. these songs. And then I ended up at a music conference in Las Vegas that a, a mentor of mine was putting on. And uh, one night after our workshops and things, we were all sitting around the pool, this Vegas hotel, and just playing songs for each other. And I played a song called Whale Blubber, which is a love song. Uh-huh. And they were like, and the next morning, everybody was like, that's what you need to be doing. We can't get that stupid whale blubber song out of our head. And I was like, no, no, it's garbage, <laughs> garbage music, B-sides. And they were like, uh-huh. no, seriously, we, that's a great song. We can't get it out of our heads. And and so I had two other songs that were in that funny vein. So I started, and my, my mentor was also at the time pushing me to do solo gigs because I was, I just, I put my band back together. Uh-huh. It's the same guys I work with now. I love them. They're fantastic musicians, but he was like, great, go solo. You're going to open up a lot more gig opportunities mm-hmm. for yourself. So I was doing, I said, I'll do half and half. Maybe I'll do a few. So I was totally against the idea. And now look where I am. I (laughs) haven't seen my bandmates in years. And, but I, I, 
went out and I started doing coffee shop gigs. Uh, and I had a terrible habit of forgetting my lyrics, uh-huh. which doesn't happen as much these days, but it's probably now that I've been lazy with Zoom shows and notepads in front of me while I'm performing, yeah. it's probably going to happen more. <laughs> but I I had a terrible, so I would forget the lyrics and I would start making jokes about forgetting the lyrics. And I was always about, if I make a big enough mistake, they noticed, I noticed, let's crack a joke. Mm-hmm. And I would, the intros to the songs, I would start cracking jokes in the intros to the songs, even if they weren't comedy songs. And I had a couple of comedy songs. And at some point, a friend of mine, performer named Groovy Judy in San Francisco, she's great. And she said, hey, I got, uh, there's this comedy music show at the Hyena Theater in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Let me, I'm going to get you on there. And I was like, all right, that seems seems weird, but all mm-hmm. right. And so I had, you know, three songs and I went and I still have the recording of that show. This is my first official comedy show. Uh-huh. And uh, I listened back and I'm just like, yeah. you know, it's cringeworthy. <laughs> But the MC at that show was a lady named Lynn Ruth Miller, who is, she lives in London now. She is, let's see, I just talked to her a couple of weeks ago. Was she just turned 86, I think? Uh-huh. Uh, something like that. She's up there and she's still doing comedy. At the time, she was like 71 when I met her. And she's emceeing this show. And she said, hey, I need a guitar player for my act. We're going to do this thing where uh, you play Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols, and I throw old lady lingerie at the audience. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, cool, I'm in. And and it was hilarious. It was so It was a great bit. So she started taking me around to the local comedy shows here in the Bay Area to do this bit. Mm-hmm. And then she'd go, hey, by the way, he's got song. He's got some material. Why don't you put him up? And they'd go, hey, can you do seven minutes? And I'd be like, seven minutes? I did four hours with my band the other night. I can do seven minutes. Yeah. And then you get up there and you're like, oh, my God, seven minutes is an eternity. Yeah. And when, especially when it's not going well. And that's kind of how I started. She just kept getting me sets until I started to get known in the community. And then I could get put up. And I got all the guitar comic flack of, man, you're not a real comic, eh, guitar comic. Nah. Uh-huh. And I, I was like, if I'm going to do this, then I should learn how to do this. And so I started diving into actually writing stand-up. Mm. Not through, I did the Judy Carter book and mm. things like that. I had a few books and things like that. I don't think I ever used any of the material that ever came out of any of the exercises in any of the books. But yeah. it's a good way to just get you started on that pathway of right. thinking that way. So I started developing the stand-up portion of my show, which didn't make the naysayers any happier because now I was, now is now you're cheating. Uh-huh. And because, uh, because I would do, I learned how to structure my show from Rodney Carrington. I would uh-huh. listen to his albums. And because before I was, I would do some stand up, I would do a song, I would do some stand up, I would do a song, and I was peppering the songs in the show. And then I listened to Rodney's albums, and I was like, oh, he saves all the music to the end of the show. Mm. And so that there's not this break in the timing of taking the guitar off, putting it on, all mm. that kind of stuff. And so. I ended up structuring my show that way, which was a big help. Now I can take them through 45, 50 minutes of stand-up, mm. and then just as they're starting to to lose their energy a little bit, I go, let's grab the guitar, let's do some songs, and it kicks the show up to mm-hmm. another energy level at the end and gives them something different than what they just saw. Yeah, that's yeah, that's how I got into it, and it just kind of snowballed from there. It was all really an accident. Yeah. Um, I didn't plan on being a comic, but it had it really my mentor, Tim, was not kidding when he said solo gigs would open up more opportunities yeah. for me because <laughs> comedy certainly did. There's way more places to do comedy than there is to play original music. Yes. So yeah. I can walk into a casino and in, you go in as a music actor like we only want to hear covers. We only want to hear the hits. Yeah, right. But if I go in with original music as a comic, I can play whatever I want. Yeah. As long as it's funny yeah. and I can do my original stuff. That's just one example. But right. 
yeah, so it just kind of snowballed from there, and, and here we are. Yeah, and you seem, just in stalking you on the internet, you seem like one of those guys that is, you have to be continually creating. Every day you get up and you're like, what am I going to do? Is it going to be music? Yeah. Is it going to be a joke? Is, am I yeah. pegging you right? It, it, oh, yeah. Yeah. And some days it's me forcing myself to do that. Yeah. Because I haven't had a real job, like a job, job uh-huh. since 90, 1994 when I yeah. started teaching. Teaching music isn't a, it's not a real job. It's <laughs> it's useful, but I yeah. don't have to go report to somebody at work and clock in. And right. I don't there's no tie. Uh, there's no cubicle. Yeah. Anything keeps me out of a necktie and a cubicle and is creative. I'm happy with. Yeah. And when I get up each day, it is this is my job. I have to do something creative today. And then I have to get the word out to the public that I've done something creative. Uh That's really all there is to this job, create something and then give it to people over and over and over again. So the first few hours of my day are generally, except today's been a disaster (laughs) besides this, Uh, I haven't got anything accomplished today, but my, my usually between say eight 30 and noon is all creative time. Uh-huh. And I do have to decide whether, okay, am I writing comedy today? Am I writing music? Am I recording music? Am I filming a, a video or of, of some sort? What am I doing? But that's my creative time. And I try and plan that ahead at least the night before. Okay. Uh-huh. That's what I'm doing tomorrow morning. And some days that works better and some days that doesn't work. And, but I try to do like today, all I got done, I wrote 10 jokes uh-huh. And I, I made, I posted one of them on the social media channels. And a little later, I got to post up some videos. But as far as the creative work today, that's all I got done. I wrote 10 jokes. Yeah. And one of them was decent. And okay, that's all I've got time for today. Yeah. I've got other things I got to get to, you know? <laughs> well, Once, you did 10 more than I did today. So good for, good for you. <laughs> It's just I, I have to make sure that I've done something because it keeps the wheels greased Yeah. for when even if I, I 10 garbage jokes, one of them was pretty good and it's a joke I'll never use again mm-hmm. and whatever. I just posted it on the social media places and it'll get a few clicks and, and whatever. But if I don't have a if I have a day where I haven't done anything creative. I usually give myself the weekends off, but mm. Monday through Friday, it's Monday through Friday. I have to do it in the morning. If I hit noon and I haven't done it, it's not going to get done because the afternoon is all business. Mm. And so I, I have to really try and focus myself in the morning to put something on paper or put something in the laptop, record something. If I'm not feeling creative, I will just dig into a recording project that I'm in the middle of or yeah. something like that, or if i got a deadline or things like that. So yeah, it's really just this is my job. So I have to do this. Otherwise it's not my, it's not going to be my job and I'm going to have to go get some shitty job. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I dig that. So your style of humor, would you say that your style, it's pretty, a lot of misdirects and a lot of just really quick aside jokes that are, they're very clever. It's really, it's really good. Is that how you started or did you just do the clumsy one-liner stuff for a while and then build into that i was never really a one-liner guy because all of my favorite comics were long-form comics like eddie izzard is my all-time comic hero Mm. where he is going to do long extravagant bits with lots of act outs and all that kind of stuff and as much as i love somebody like mitch hedberg Uh that was never my style i was the i was looking at guys that were doing an hour not five minutes Mm. And so I always looked at those guys and went, well, okay, he's talking about that subject for seven, eight, nine minutes. How do I do that with Mm. the subject that I'm working with here? To the point where I I had even given myself an exercise one time. Eddie Izzard has that bit about 
bees, right? Uh, yeah. it's, it's, uh, she's got a classic bit about bees. Yeah. And uh, I was like, could I write a bit about bees without hitting any of the same territory or premises? Yeah. And I sat down to do that. And not only was I able to do it, I was able to get, I don't know, six, seven minutes out of it. Uh-huh. And it ended up in one of my specials. Uh-huh. And so it turned out to be a really good, it was super clean, which helped. That's always yeah. good to have a few, a really clean bit. And so it worked out. So I uh, sometimes I'll give myself an assignment like that. Could I tackle that subject in a completely different way? Uh-huh. And then other times it's just, oh, this I got this thing in my notebook. I really should just sit down and, and bang on it a little bit and see what comes out. But I was always much more of a, a long form, how much can I squeeze out of this topic uh, kind uh-huh. of comic. And But also keeping in mind... I, a lot of comics hate to talk about laughs per minute, but I'm conscious of it. Yeah. And because I want, it's a comedy show. I would right. like them to laugh. I started, what really was a learning experience for that is I started transcribing shows. Okay. Um, I started with Jim Gaffigan specials. Uh-huh. And so I took a couple of his specials and I literally just typed out every word he said. And I was like, oh, that's how short a joke is supposed to be. Yeah. He's spending a lot of time on those topics, uh-huh. but the jokes are short. Yeah. And that was showing me. Then I could look at my text on the screen versus Jim Gaffigan's text on the screen and uh-huh. go, oh, I got to get rid of a lot of this yeah. to make it work. And yeah. so that was very educational. Then I flipped it and I started transcribing Stuart Lee specials. Okay. Which is a wildly different style. Yeah. Totally the other, where it's very meandering and long and yeah. uses lots of extra words. And he also has less laughs per minute, but it's equally brilliant. Uh-huh. And, and so I went for one of those two things. How much can I put in? How much can I take out? But that was really educational just to be able to visually see it on the screen uh-huh. of Here's what a jo- here's what a good joke looks like when it's written out. And that's one of the pieces of advice I always give new comics when they ask. I don't offer any unsolicited advice, but when they ask, when they go, do you have any tips for me? I go, write your stuff out, uh-huh. okay? Because you're going to see where the extra words are. You're going to start seeing where the, the fat is that you can cut away yeah. from those jokes. And then when it's punchier, even if the bit is long, you're going to have more laughs in that bit. And right. it's just, it takes a lot of work to go i don't need that word and i've been known to overdo it too where i cut too much out and the audience goes we don't know what you're talking about (laughs) i go oh i took too much out all right let's put some back in (laughs) a little more exposition (laughs) yeah a little more exposition you know so it was the that's what i especially on the last this last show that i put out burning sensation that was it took me almost five years to write that show Uh. because i was tackling subjects in a way that I didn't have the, the chops for before. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a lot of stuff that had been sitting in my notebook for years and I couldn't figure out how to handle it. And it was a show that over the, as I was touring the show, writing it over four or five years, pissed off a lot of people along the way. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's not it. Uh, the joke works, but I got to find a different way to communicate it. Yeah. And, and then it finally got to a point where it worked uh-huh. and nobody was, there were still people who would get angry, but they were getting angry for the wrong reasons that I didn't have to listen to. Right. The, the people that mattered said, that's good. Uh-huh. And I was like, great. That's all I need to hear. And that's when, that's when we finally filmed it. I was so tired of the material by, by the time yeah. we got to filming it, <laughs> but it was literally just going, okay, I watched the show from the night before go through. Okay. That didn't, why didn't that joke didn't get a laugh again? It did the first 10 times, but the last five times it didn't, what uh-huh. do I need to do to bring that one back and things like that. And just cutting out all the fat, cutting out all the fat. So writing the jokes out has is super valuable for me. I've never been really like a riff guy, a talk it out on stage guy. Yeah. I'm, I'm not an improv guy. To me, it's not much different than writing a song. Uh-huh. Well, I go up on stage and right. I go, 
here's a thing that I have composed for you, and now I'm going to play it for you. Yeah. And there might be a little bit of improvisation in the middle of it, or there uh-huh. might be a dash of crowd work here, or whatever there is. There's enough to keep it light so that it doesn't sound like I'm reading off a piece of paper. It's composed. I write a lot more like Carlin than yeah. I do like Robin Williams. Right. And and that's what works for me. And everybody works differently. I would love to be able to just go up on stage, talk through a bit, and get some funny things out of it. But I know yeah. that would be a garbage set. Yeah. And I don't want to do that, even if they didn't pay to get in. Yeah, that's it, it's funny how many comedians like Corey Ryan Forrester was one of them I talked to, and he works it all out on stage. It's just it's just he comes up with a punchline and just adds to it a little bit and decides what to use. And then it all of a sudden it becomes a joke. I can't do that either. I'm more, more like you yeah. in that respect. Now you're, and you're, and at, I, I will say that said, some of my best punchlines have come up as I riffed them on stage. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. You just find it. And sometimes it's because you forgot what the punchline was. And you're grasping yeah. <laughs> for, I've done that myself. I, I'm grasping, sure. what the hell was I supposed to say? And then all of a sudden, something better comes out and yeah. then you have to run and write it down because you're going to forget it. But uh, yeah. at least, yeah, the, at the least other, I do. The other thing that you brought up is you were talking more about the delivery of the way that, the, that I do it with the throwaway yeah. lines and the things like that. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a whole separate thing. Once I've got it written out, I walk in circles in my house doing the show to my couch uh-huh. like dozens and dozens of times uh-huh. before it goes on stage. Because one, I want to have it all in my head and know right. what the material is, but I also have to get a, the writerly aspect out of it so that it sounds like conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's when I start working on how do I deliver that line? Am I going to punch it right at him? Uh-huh. Or am I going to turn around to get a drink of water and mumble it into the mic yeah. and ho- and, right. and let them catch it? Yeah. And those are my favorite ones. Any Anytime I can get a laugh when I'm not even looking at the audience, my back is turned, if I'm laying down on the stage, I love kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Non-verbal laughs. Yeah. If I can just look at somebody and get a laugh. Yeah. God, those are so fun. Yeah. So fun. So that's the stuff that comes in the rehearsal process rather than the writing process. Right. And I do a lot of rehearsal. And your style of comedy requires a lot of self-awareness, especially when, you know, Zoom comedy, we'll talk about that later. But (laughs) when you're live, your stuff sometimes takes a second for people to get okay and i'll just the the homonym bit where you're going through the words <laughs> and then you say which and coulter and yeah. and it took a second because you were talking about something else you were talking yeah. about fil on the coffee cup on the receipt, yeah yeah on the, yeah on the receipt and the uh, then you go into the and coulter you, yeah. you have enough sense to take that pause and let them get it and catch up and then they laugh harder so that i right. i appreciate that kind of self-awareness because when you are fiddling around with that stuff that it's either a throw throwaway line or it's a super misdirect it's just really off the wall misdirect and they're they're going like this and they all of a sudden have to take that right turn sometimes it takes a while for an audience and i watched a lot of your stuff and it's really masterful that you allow that pause long enough for them to catch up they laugh harder and then you can go into the Mm -hmm. next thing so i I really admired that about you and and you don't see that a lot a lot of folks are either they're they're either um super aggressive if they don't get Mm -hmm. the laugh when they go into the next joke or they're just not patient enough for it to land and you do that very well Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's that. It's just practice. It's a lot of stage time and doing those jokes and going, 
in learning just learning the timing of when they're going to get it because it's almost always the same mm-hmm. i know that when i do the ann coulter joke there's going to be an extra two beats before mm-hmm. the laugh comes in right but that only came from having done that joke a billion times right yeah. and the first few times i tried it i would go oh it didn't work and jump into the next joke uh-huh. and so it was it's what i one of the things that i discovered that i really like to do is wait for that laugh mm-hmm. where i'll just I'll look at them and they go, and cause I know the, I can see the gears turning in their head and they go and it clicks. I don't like to do jokes where I spoon feed the punchline to them. Yeah. You yeah, know, because definitely I, where I see that a lot and I like to let them make the connection mm-hmm. to the punchline. I will I purposely leave out a piece of the information so that they in their brain have to make one more jump uh-huh. to get the punchline. And to me, that's so much more satisfying because it makes the audience feel smarter. It makes them feel more engaged. Yeah. It makes them feel like part of the process. And that's the kind of comedy that I like. We're all writing just we're all writing what we want to hear, essentially. Yeah. And so those are the type of comics that I like that leave a little bit of the last bit of the last mile to go in the audience's brain Mm. rather than just explaining the joke all the way up to the punchline. And there's certainly room for that too. I've had jokes where they just didn't work the way I was doing it. And I was like, okay, I need one more line and then they get it. And it depends on the audience and all that kind of stuff. But I like anything where I can, I can't remember what the joke is now, but there was one joke in my last show where I would get, I would say it. Mm. There was a little extra beat where they would get it. They would laugh. And then if I just shut up, they would laugh again. Yeah. Because there was another layer to the joke yeah. Yeah. that took them while they were laughing. They figured out that next layer to the joke uh-huh. and they would laugh again. And that is the greatest. If I walk on stage and they just keep laughing and I don't say anything. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right. Yep. I'm down for that. That's what's time to fill. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Right. No doubt. <laughs> So when did the signature of the red shirt thing come in? <laughs> Another kind of a trademark of yeah. Phil Johnson. Yeah. So when when I was just playing music with my band in the 90s, we were playing around here in the Bay Area. And that was very much the cargo shorts and flannel shirts era of rock music, yeah. certainly here in the Bay Area. Yeah. And so we were like, we got to do something different. And so we went out, we bought these like shiny satiny looking shirts Mm -hmm. and we had them in all different colors and and we would wear those on stage and we were the band that did that and and it became just a branding thing to help us stand apart from from all the flannel shirts in this scene and so when i fell into doing solo gigs and doing comedy I just kept dressing the same way that I did during the band gigs. Uh, I was like, why change? I'm still the brand. I'm still the product. And I'm going to maintain that to my fans. I have fans that have been following me since the nineties. Yeah. They would come see roadside attraction, play at the cactus club. And now they come see me play at the comedy club. Uh, and, and so the brand, I wanted the branding to be consistent all the way through. And so I had, when I started doing comedy, I would wear the red one, the blue one. I, I have a white one that is blinding like yeah, i wore I that once and everybody was <laughs> yeah. like stop and so i have a purple one and so every time i wore the red one people would come up to my merchandise table after and go man i really love that shirt i gotta buy your cd and that happened uh, more when i was wearing the red shirt okay and so i was like guess i'm gonna go buy some more red shirts yeah <laughs> uh and so now i have six of those <laughs> yeah I have I have the one like really the original the really good one and yeah. then I have five others that I the really good one is the one in the specials I wear the same one for all the specials and then but it became a branding thing and it's another one of those things that a lot of comics 
hate when they see, right? They're like, uh-huh. oh, stupid shirt again. And I'm like, okay, nobody remembers our names when we walk out of the club, okay? Right. I, my name is Phil Johnson. Yeah. Nobody's going to remember Phil Johnson at the end of the night after they've had five drinks. Yeah. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and how many times have I talked to somebody and they're like, oh, I went to a comedy show last night. I'm like, cool, who'd you see? I don't remember, but they were really great. Yeah. And so I needed something that was just visual cues, a branding thing. Mm. And that's what the red shirt became. The red shirt, the, the hair, uh-huh. the which I've, I've had since I was a teenager. I wear, when I'm not wearing headphones, I wear sunglasses on my head. Uh-huh. And uh, partially that's part of the branding, partially is to keep my hair out of my face when I'm on stage. Uh-huh. Uh, because <laughs> a girl headband thing would look dumb. Yeah. And so... <laughs> I wear sunglasses on my head, which have also been there since like middle school. I have two dents in my head right here from where the sunglasses oh, wow. have been on my head since middle school. <laughs> and uh, so all of that just became the visual branding uh-huh. for what I'm doing so that when I walk into a club, people go, oh, red shirt guy is here. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then I remind them of my name and they'll yeah. get it after four or five times after right. enough exposure. But they remember me because of what I look like and they're happy to see me that way. Yeah. And there's. So many random white guys in comedy that you have to differentiate yourself in some way. And so I, in the last tour cycle for for Burning Sensation, I wanted to change things up a little bit more just for my own sanity. And also because the show has a little bit of a darker edge to it Mm -hmm. than my previous work did. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, put a leather, a leather jacket over it. It's not real leather, Peter people. It's mm-hmm. fake leather. Yeah. And, and so I added a leather jacket to it. So the red shirt is still there. The branding is still there. It's a little bit different look. It's a little bit updated uh-huh. for the special. I actually did leather pants and the leather jacket. Uh-huh. Uh, Cause I was like, I'm four specials in, we're going to do the Eddie Murphy leather special. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> and uh, so the, and the leather pants are vintage. They're from the nineties when I wore them with the band. Uh-huh. And uh, those are real leather. Sorry, Peter. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're old. I've had them a long that time. Cow's and, uh, back, so. That cow's <laughs> never coming back. So that cow's never coming back. Yeah. And, and, and people would be like, Oh, dude, leather pants. Wow. Okay. And, but most people go, Oh, wow, dude, I dig the pants. They're cool. Yeah. And, and it was one of those things that could either have come off super cheesy or it worked. And mm. as soon as enough women went really like those pants, I was like, cool, then they're fine. I don't care what the guys say. If the women like them, then that's the target market for everything. Yeah, yeah no doubt. So way to understand marketing. That's uh, it's a lot of comedians just don't. And you talked about the fans you've had since the 90s and one of the marketing one of the marketing things is so important is finding your tribe and getting those a thousand true followers and all that kind of stuff. And it seems like your, your fans are pretty rabidly attached to you. (laughs) I watch when you put stuff out and also when you're doing the zoom stuff, you were packing stuff when other people couldn't get three people to show up and uh, how did you create that connection with your fans was it the comedy itself was it the fact that you talked to them afterwards what makes that kind of connection it's a little bit of all that and i will say my fan base isn't big Mm. um but the people that i do have are devoted i'm still working on my thousand true fans but the people that i have i want to keep them and so it's putting out the best work i can consistently to keep them engaged there's a tiny little spider right there <laughs> coming down to my studio. <laughs> I was like, what is that? So it's it, putting out work as consistently as I can. Right now I'm putting out videos every day that are really just clips from the special, but mm-hmm. the short clips, I can put them out every day. I'm putting out new music every six weeks. As soon as I get 
you know, back touring. I can find out if my new show works outside of Zoom shows. So mm-hmm. it's constantly new stuff. I make sure to reply to everybody mm-hmm. as much as I can, even if it's a like or something like that. If they, I don't know how to reply to this, right. but if it's something, I will absolutely reply to everybody. I answer emails as quick as I can. And when mm-hmm. I get them, mm-hmm. I, at shows, I talk to people after the shows at the merch table. Mm-hmm. Before the shows, this is something comics don't like to do, and I really have to force myself to do it because I don't particularly like it either, Uh is I will go out into the showroom and talk to the audience before the show, Uh which I've never met another comic that likes to do that. Like I said, I don't really like to, but it's good because I will go out, whether I'm headlining or featuring or if it's a a five-minute showcase or whatever, I'll just go talk to people. Hey, you've been to this show before? Oh, what brought you in? Cool. Because then when I get on stage, we're friends. Yeah. They've already met me. They're going to be more likely to give me the benefit of the doubt if a joke doesn't land and and be that much more excited when a joke does land. So that's really helpful. But I'm as introverted as any other comic out there, and so I really have to push myself to do that. That's hard, yeah. And but it really does work because now I've talked to them before the show. They've seen the show. I'm going to talk to them after the show. Now that's I've got three touch points with mm-hmm. those people. And they say, what do you need? Six to seven touch points before some but people really remember a brand or a product or right. whatever it is. So now I've got three touch points with those people. And if I can get their email address, they're going to get an autoresponder series uh, from my emails that takes them through my career it's mm-hmm. going to take them through blog posts it's going to suggest different tracks to listen to it's going to point out all these different things because i've got a rather large catalog after doing this all this time mm-hmm. and so somebody who saw me do 30 minutes in a feature gig has barely scratched the surface of the stuff that i put out so i want to guide them through that catalog of stuff that i've released and bring them deeper into that until i've got those seven or eight touch points mm-hmm. where now they can go they can say, okay, I know who this guy is. I know he does good work. And when he comes back next year, we're going to go see him again. Mm. And so it's constant communication with people. And that's, it's no different on the business side of it either. It's constant communication with people. We haven't been gigging this whole year, but I've tried to keep in touch with bookers anyway. I've tried to keep in touch with other comics. That's part of what I do each day is sit down, message a few people that I haven't talked to in a few months and go, what are you doing? What are you working on? How can I help? And, and that's, brought lots of opportunities Uh to me but even when it doesn't i'm still keeping those friendships and acquaintances warm so that when we are back out in the world people still know who i am and i still know who they am and just helping people feel seen yeah (laughs) is wonderful for them when i go hey man what are you working on they're like oh my gosh so nice of you to send me a note i've got a couple messages waiting on my phone from the people that i contacted this morning yeah and so it's just trying to be social which is hard it's hard and our natural tendency is to just crawl up in a ball and think of material and say why can't i be famous because i'm funny Uh, and 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 you have to and and reaching out it's really hard and the funny thing is i obviously don't do it as much as you do but when i do you do get a reward even if it isn't something that you're able to monetize or something that you're able to do something with you've made a connection and they remember you and maybe you'll be on a show in 
a year or whatever when yeah. whenever everything's back to normal but yeah, yeah i i totally dig that you take the time to do that because that that really is the hardest part of the business is really reaching out and keeping those connections because yeah. if you don't keep it sometimes you burn a bridge and you don't know don't even know you did it and yeah. that's actually that, I'll, that's, i have a great re- resource for that there's a, a podcast called the jordan harbinger show okay. and jordan has a a free like email program uh-huh. uh, it's called six minute networking. I think that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. If you listen to any of episode of his show, he'll talk about it. And it's just a free email course. Mm-hmm. And he takes you through different ways of connecting with people so mm-hmm. that you can, and I have it on my schedule each day. Here's the type of ne- connecting I'm going to do today. Mm-hmm. Here's the type of connecting I'm going to do today. And each day I've got a different sort of style of connecting. I'm going to go talk to this people in these people in this way today. And then if it's on my to-do list, it'll get done. Usually Uh if it's not on my to-do list, it will never get done. So I put it on my to-do list to do. And, but his six minute networking course is free and really fantastic. Uh I've taken other networking things that I paid for that Uh were not useful. And his is super free. His show's really good anyway. He's, but He's one of those guys. He follows all that stuff. This is a podcast that has millions of listeners, Mm -hmm. super famous guests, the whole thing. But if I message Jordan on Instagram and go, oh, hey, man, that was really cool what you said about the thing. Or, hey, man, I I, I did your thing that you said that you mentioned, and Uh I got this out of it. Uh He will send me a message back every single time. And I know I'm one of a billion people messaging that guy on Instagram. Yeah. (laughs) But he gets back to me every single time. Yeah. And it's when you get to that level, I don't know how he keeps up with that kind of thing. It's manageable where I am, but right. at some point it becomes unmanageable and I don't know how he does it. But doing that makes me go on other people's shows and go, Hey, go listen to the Jordan Harbinger show. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. For and, sure. Um, yeah. And I had somebody yesterday, somebody that I've been in contact who has been engaging with my work over the, the last six or eight months. And he sent me a message yesterday and he was like, hey, I was on this guy's show yesterday and I gave you a shout out and you should probably call him and get on his show too. And I was like, uh, great, thank you. Uh, and so it's just about just engaging with as many people as you can. And you're not always going to get something out of it, but that's not really the point of it. The point of it is to keep the connections so that you're the people who have more friends live longer and are healthier. Yes. (laughs) And they're not all friends. Some of them are acquaintances. I have a, I have a, a list of people that I try to stay in closer contact with. They're called my well people. I'm digging the well before I need it, as Jordan Harbinger would say. Uh And those are the people that if I lost everything tomorrow, I would go to them and say, I need advice. What do I do now? Uh And so I stay closer to those people. Because I need those to be tighter relationships. Yeah. And then there's other looser relationships. Not everybody has to be your best friend. But it's oftentimes the looser relationships that yield things later on. Uh-huh. And again, that's not the point. The point is to be social with people. Everything else follows along with that. But that's that's really how I do it. And I have to force myself to do it. I don't always like it doing it. But it's just send somebody a note. Because they also aren't really excited about reaching out to me either. Mm-hmm. Without a specific purpose. If it's, I want to book you on my show, that's a specific purpose. That's not a big deal. Yeah. But to just reach out and go, hey, man, what are you up to? What are you working on? That's scary for a lot of people. Yeah. It's And it's uncomfortable. Yeah. But if you do it, it's very satisfying after you've had that great conversation. Uh Uh-huh. 
That's know. so funny because I've been in sales all my life, and it's like sales one-on-one stuff. It's the yeah. the harder you work, the luckier you get. It's not right. necessarily where you worked hard. Sometimes it's somewhere else, but you get lucky. Yep. And the other yep. thing is always have a reason to reach out to somebody. Don't just say, hey, I'm just checking in. Always right. just say, Hey, what are you working on? Or, Hey, what do you you think of this? Have a specific reason that way people latch onto it. Otherwise just checking in. They're like, I I don't even need to answer that. And yeah, they won't answer. or It'll be like, yeah, man, cool. Yeah. Or just some, some whatever answer. But if you ask them an answer that is because people just want people want to talk about themselves. Mm -hmm. And so if you give them a reason to talk about what they're doing or what they're working on or what they're going through or something like that, then you have a conversation started. Mm. And that's an easy way to, my dad was a salesman his entire life. So uh, yeah. I grew up with a lot of those concepts and he would, when I was 14, he was like, here's Dale Carnegie. Go read that. <laughs> uh, here's who's that. Who's that old school, like sales book. It, how to win friends and influence people. That's yeah. There's that one, but there's, Oh, there's a, like a super old school, super cheesy guy. Here's your five closes. Oh, I yeah. can't think of his name. Ah, uh, man. But I listened to all that guy's audiobooks uh, back in the day. And you, you can, a lot of that stuff doesn't work in the same way anymore, yeah, yeah. but the principles are still the same. Yeah. It's the same as comedy. You know? It's the same as comedy. Nobody's invented anything new for years. It's your take, it's your particular flavor on something that somebody did in the cat skills yeah. in the 40s. Uh, and, sure. Yeah. So it, it's funny because I, I always compare like Henny Youngman to Mitch Hedberg. If, if you listen uh-huh. to the meter oh, yeah. and the way they do yep. their delivery, it's very similar. Mitch Hedberg is way cooler. And it's a little bit more out there than Henny Youngman's, but right. the delivery, it, you put them by each other, it, it's almost musical. It's almost like they're both playing yeah. the same song. And yeah, so that's one thing I always know about myself when I'm writing it, is I can compare myself to really, it's Day, it's Letterman and Ray Romano. It's, it's, it's okay. Ray Romano's writing with Dave Letterman's delivery. And okay. it, it, I just know that's where I sit and that's the only place I can sit I've tried to uh-huh. be I've tried to be out there and I what got me I, I don't want to talk about myself too much but what got me was the fact that you said that uh, burning sensation is a little bit darker than you're used to and yeah. the funny thing is, is I've done the same thing I've got a lot I've got this whole book of darker stuff that mm-hmm. is doesn't fit with my stuff at all and i've uh-huh. you i've tried to throw it out there and they're like wtf where's lanky scott and his his wacky uh-huh. family humor you know and <laughs> tell me you, you talked about having that and deciding to put that in the special how did you uh, this is uh, from what i understand this is stuff that you've had around either for years or for mm-hmm. quite a while what was it that made you make that jump to say okay uh, I'm going to put the really super easy, wacky stuff away for a little while, and I'm going to tackle this. What was it that made you make that jump? It was really in the writing process because I would have an idea in my notebook, mm-hmm. and I would look at it and go, and I would write some things, and I go, I, yeah, this isn't it. This yeah. isn't going to work. And so I would put it away for a while, and then I would come back to it a year later, try and write some new stuff around it, and go, no, nope, that's not it. That's not going to work. And, and then eventually if I was able to, oh, okay. Oh no, no, these are jokes. These are jokes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then I would take them out and start trying them out. And 
like I said, a lot of times they didn't work because I wasn't delivering them or my attitude behind the delivery wasn't right or Mm. the wording wasn't quite right or whatever it was. So then I was like, okay, the idea sounds, some people like it. Now, how do I make it more palatable without diluting the message of the joke? Mm. And right. so it became just trying variations on that joke. And it would be one line in a five-minute bit or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And just just cranking out, If I okay, if I say it this way, if I say it with a smile on my face or if I say it with a scowl on my face or if mm-hmm. I say it with my right hand in the air, whatever it is, those little gestural facial things can be the difference between getting the laugh and not getting the laugh. Right. And so in once I had the jokes, then in the rehearsal process, I would come up with different ways of delivering it and go, oh, if I say this uncomfortable thing with this particular facial expression, Mm -hmm. then they'll laugh at it. Mm -hmm. But if I'm, I am, I don't want to say I'm perfect. I'm totally choreographed on stage, Mm -hmm. but there is an element of choreography on stage where I know if I do this, if I do this, if I make this hand gesture, it's going to change the way that things work out in the reaction. Right. And I love that part of it. I like that, that because there are comics who want everything to be solely based on the words and they will like a Chappelle's like that, where he will take his notes on stage and read his jokes. And if they don't work, that joke is out. He wants to work solely on the words before anything else. I I think of it much more like opera where it's, we're going to bring in, all of the art forms okay Mm -hmm. it's the writing it's the choreography it's the music and in the case of the music it's the rhythm of what i'm saying Mm -hmm. makes a difference right you know how i because i will tend to i'll tend i was i don't know weird habit that annoys me even where i'll get halfway through a sentence and then i'll keep working like that where i pause like halfway through a sentence it it sounds it annoys me when i do it but Mm -hmm. i noticed that it becomes part of my vocal style that i do that and so that also just becomes part of the overall package mm. of who this is right. when I'm on stage. But the decision to put that darker material in was just, okay, I've got some things that I think are going to work. Let's go figure out how to not piss people off with them. Mm-hmm. If I can get the people who are part of the group that I'm talking about in the joke to laugh at those jokes, then I've won. Uh-huh. Okay. Because oftentimes I'm not talking about the people that I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody else completely outside mm-hmm. of that group. Like when I talk about, when I have a joke about black folks, the jokes are almost always about white people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But people get uncomfortable because I'm talking about black folks and it's yeah. always the white people that get uncomfortable about it. You oh know? yeah. And every you know, time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, uh, I want to make sure that anytime I'm doing something that's uncomfortable, that it's coming from an honest place, that it's coming from uh, a, a supportive place. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I do Catholic jokes, it's not always a supportive place mm-hmm. uh, because there's a little bit more anger on that side of things yeah. than than if I'm doing something else. But I, in my last special, there is a large chunk about my first communion mm-hmm. and yeah. it gets red, like, it gets it goes to some places where that would make people uncomfortable, and I have Catholics come up to me and go, "Yeah, all right." Oh, the, the, the how long has that been around? Just it, I, I'm, I was listening to that by myself and I laughed out loud. And comedians don't do that. I, I yeah, was, right, and it was just perfect. How long has that been around? <laughs> But that's the kind of stuff that sat in my notebook for years before I figured out how to deliver it and how to write around it where – because I don't like – if I've got an idea that's one joke, it's going on Twitter. It's not going on stage. And so it's can I put enough stuff else around this story to make it work as a bit on stage? 
because again, it always goes back to the long form thing. I like long form bits. I actually, I, it's a lot of times I have to make shorter tracks because Sirius XM didn't pick up as many tracks from this last special as I wanted them uh, to. And I think it's because I was handing them 10 minute bits, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they picked up the music, but uh, not as much of the, the stand up stuff. Yeah. So I was like, oh, they need smaller bits. So I'm just, the next one, I'm just going to, you know, take my, I have a 13 minute bit about Catholic Saints. Uh, uh-huh. that i've been working on and that's going to get cut down to three five minute bits or right. something like that yeah that, uh, went in the liner notes <laughs> but yeah so it just became about i think i can do this now let's try it if it didn't work i would put it back in the notebook mm-hmm. and if it did work then i would keep hustling at it and i had a friend i was playing a gig here like real close to home and a friend another comic came to see me who hadn't seen me in a long time huh. and i walked off stage and he went what the hell happened to you yeah. <laughs> i said what <laughs> he goes you're so different now. Like your act is really different now. And yeah. I was like, is it? And he goes, cause I didn't seem that different to me. It was just seemed like a natural progression of things. Yeah. And he was like, he was like, no dude, I haven't seen you in a year and a half. Your act is super different now. And I was like, okay, uh-huh. cool. And that's fine because you don't want to keep handing people the same thing year right. after year after year, unless Gaffigan can do it. And ACDC can do it. Yeah. Seinfeld can do it. I, I get bored with my own stuff, so yeah. I want to do something different and offer them something different. Do you feel like the special gave you like a release? Because obviously, some, especially the Catholic stuff, comes from a little bit of a darker place mm-hmm. and a, a bad experience. Do you feel like that that because you, you've been staying in your lane for so long that switching lanes a little bit, do you feel like that maybe woke you up a little bit and made you feel better about what you do? I think it. I don't know that it made me feel better about my, what I do. It was more satisfying. Okay. Um, yeah. Than some of the old material. Mm. And I was never dissatisfied with my old right. material. I listen back now and there's jokes that I wouldn't go back right. to just because they don't make sense or I'm not that person anymore or whatever it is. Yeah. But, so I was always satisfied with my work, but this one was like, oh, finally, I'm doing some of the stuff that I've really wanted to do. Yeah. And so that was fun. But then putting it in perspective, the new show that I wrote over the last year is not that. No. <laughs> it's, yeah. It has some of those same elements, but uh, in a completely different way. I feel like it's a much lighter show uh-huh. than the last one was. Now, that's going to depend on what the response is when I finally take it on the road. I don't know. Zoom audiences aren't the same as real audiences. And so that's all I've done it for, Zoom audiences yeah. show so far. So it, I don't know what's going to happen when... I go to Indiana (laughs) where you are and do some of these jokes with those people. I don't know if they're going to hit. I don't know if they're going to, I don't know if places are going to understand them or like them or Uh, not like them. I have no idea. I have no idea what this, how the show is going to fly at all, which is a precarious place to be, especially when you haven't been in front of a real audience for over a year. No doubt. That's one of the things I was going to ask you, because you mentioned on another podcast I listened to that you did the the whole show for an audience of your true fans. And you yeah. said 45 people showed up, which is fantastic. Yeah. How do you gauge a win on Zoom? The same way, laughs. You know, yeah. the Zoom thing is it's a different timing because of the latency. Yeah. And you have to give them that extra beat, mm-hmm. which is excruciating, right? The audience yeah. has no idea how excruciating that extra one and a half seconds of silent is. Your eyes start switching. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Your entire career flashes across your eyes in the time it takes to get that laugh. They don't know that we've just gone from I'm the greatest comedian in the world to, oh, my God, I'm going to have to get a day job. Yeah. And 
Uh, my life is over. Oh, there's the laugh. Oh, okay. Yeah, you, yeah. They, all that happens with every joke on Zoom. Yeah. Did and, you ever uh, see the movie Scanners? It's an old. I think so. It, yeah, 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 I think so. Their, yeah. their foreheads would do. I, I feel like sometimes when I and I do don't do a lot of Zoom stuff, but when I do it, I just feel like my forehead's just going to explode, like <laughs> the the way they did it on Scanners. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally dig that. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, with the Zoom shows, like I don't like doing shows that are just like on just on Facebook Live where there's no audible audience. Yeah, Twitch even is it can be difficult. They've got a pretty the comments will be rolling in, so there's some feedback there. But without the audible feedback, the timing it just feels like screaming into a void. Yeah, and so as far as when I have an audience in front of me on Zoom, then. I can really gauge the jokes. I can't gauge the jokes as well when it's my people in the room. Yeah. Because they're going to be an easier audience. They know my style. They know what I like to talk about. They're going, they're already on board before they got in, uh-huh. which is different from showing up in a suburb of St. Louis yeah. where they have no idea who I am. And now I'm going to dump this on them, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. And, and that's a different story. So that's why I don't know how well this show is going to work. Yeah. It works great for my people, but I don't have enough of those people that I can ignore everybody else. Yeah. And so it'll be a, a total trial and error process. It's I, I think this new show that I've written is more of a, there's a running theme. It's war, more of a one man show fringe type of uh-huh. experience where I, I, I do have to look at pulling five minutes out of it that I can do at festivals and things uh-huh. like that. And I've got, there are chunks, there are bits, but there is a running story through the whole hour plus that's happening in there to the point where I don't even have any music in it yet. Cause I don't know what music is going to go at the end yet. It's all stand up so far. Uh-huh. And so I don't know how it's going to work or where I'm going to do it. I just have to start putting it out there and see where it works best. I would cool. love to go do, you know, Edinburgh fringe or something like that. Again, it's so much work or any, any fringe type of show is a, a lot of work because you're not just getting the Saturday night, eight o'clock crowd to come in regularly yeah. at the club. Yeah. You have to win at one of those because these people know their stuff. Yeah. But I feel like it's funny. Cause I feel like the stuff that I'm writing right now is for that type of audience. Yeah. And then my girlfriend was doing tech for me on zoom shows that i was doing for my my folks uh-huh. and after the she goes i go what'd you think she goes it was good it's a lot of dick jokes in this show <laughs> and i was like yeah there are a lot of dick jokes yeah. but i feel like they're smart dick jokes though. yeah and she's like yeah they're smart dick jokes but there's a lot of dick jokes in this show <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but it's dick jokes in latin she's like yeah but i have no idea do you feel like we've during the pandemic that we've lost, some comedians have decided just to just give it up that probably shouldn't have. I don't know that anybody that shouldn't have did. Okay. Because, yeah, some people have dropped out. Some people will come back when the bug hits them again. Mm-hmm. Because the easy, my, at the when everything first shut down, my girlfriend said, do you miss it? And I said, you know what? I really don't yet. Mm-hmm. Because... Nobody else gets to do it either. It's the FOMO of flipping through Instagram and seeing gig poster after gig poster that makes you go, oh, I got to sit down and send out some avails and get yeah. some gigs on the calendar. But when nobody was getting to do it, yeah. I was pretty comfortable with not being able to do it. Yeah. Now it's starting to get itchy again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I started to see the Zoom flyers, I was like, oh, okay, I got I to gotta hustle and get those. Yeah. Um, I don't hustle nearly as hard for Zoom shows. I might do four or five a month Yeah. Uh, rather than the 10 or 12 or 15 sets a month I was doing before. Because it's... It's methadone. It's methadone. It's yeah. a good way of working out stuff. It's been great for meeting comics in other countries 
in other places mm-hmm. and working with people that I had worked with before. Did a show with Drew Carey. That was fun. Yeah. I was on a show with Laurie Kilmartin last night. That uh-huh. was great. So just people that I wouldn't normally run across. I've done shows in England, Japan, Israel, France, South Africa. I couldn't normally go and do a five minute set in South Africa. I was able to. Now I've got more people that I know. Yeah. Cool. So I don't think, I think the people that got out of it, I don't, I hate to say, well, they just weren't dedicated enough to it. I just think that they got comfortable not doing it. Yeah. And some of them will come back and some of them will realize that they didn't need it anyway. Yeah. Or they might've gone into some other art form, their writing or their painting or yeah. their cooking or whatever they found. They started a YouTube video series that's working better for them or they're killing it on TikTok or mm-hmm. whatever. There's so many different ways to get that creative Jones out Yeah. that you don't have to rely on just one. I don't. Right. If I try to keep as many income streams going as yeah. I can, yeah. I try to keep as many creative streams going as I can uh-huh. because then I'm never at a loss for something to fill life. And because the friends that I had that were just like living on gigs and that was it, were in desperate straits yes. for quite a while there. Yeah. yeah. And I wasn't. I just moved all my music students online. Yeah. I still had licensing money coming in Mm. i had and i was stupidly i've made more money not being on the road doing comedy (laughs) than i would being on the road doing comedy and so i was able to take some of that money into put that into promotions and building Mm. a fan base more and all that kind of stuff so that was nice right but that's because i it's all lifestyle design for me Uh if there's something that i don't want to be doing then i try not to be doing that and if there is something that i want to be doing then i try to do more of that and I still have elements of things that I don't want to be doing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm like, okay, how can I, how can I push yeah. that off onto somebody else? Right. I've got a virtual assistant that does a lot of work for me uh-huh. uh, and things like that. And if I don't want to be doing it, then I don't want to be doing it. It's taking time away from what I do want to be doing. And so that's it. So most of the day I'm doing something that I want to be doing, or at least that I don't hate doing. Right. And, and so that goes a long way to being able to keep me in it because it's not the same thing every day mm-hmm. and it's and i think that's what a lot of people are are missing sometimes when they go oh, the, they were doing the one thing uh-huh. when the one thing is gone they either don't have the itch to do it anymore which is fine uh-huh. if you i always tell i've done like career day middle schools and things like that and the first thing i tell them is look if you don't need to do this then don't do this uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> okay because it's not an easy way to go yeah. by any means you have to love the journey because the destination may not show up yeah and um now i feel like doby maxwell i listened to an episode <laughs> with doby love doby i love doby too yeah <laughs> yeah and uh, but you have to want to be doing the day-to-day work of what it takes yeah. to do something like this. You have to enjoy sitting there in front of a blank page going, damn it, it's a blank page yeah. again. And it's frustrating and it's hateful. And you, I mean, it's, but then you get to the end of your writing hour and you go, ah, oh, all right. Yeah. I did it. I yeah. feel like a human again. So there's, it's not, certainly it's not all bliss, but yeah. I think the people that got out of it wanted to get out of it anyway probably we're looking for a way out and that gave them a way out and and good for them i hope they're they're doing something else that they feel like enhances their life more i've Um, talked to i've looked at other things and this is it yeah (laughs) no doubt i've talked to two people in the last probably seven eight months that i feel handle the pandemic well and are the most zen and it's you and justin foster have you ever run into justin foster he's an la guy and just very just okay 
things suck. Every er, yeah. everything's pretty bad, but it's getting better, and I'm going to be okay. And other people I've talked to, especially the little talk you have before the recording starts, they're like, "Oh, just fuck it, just fuck everything." And then then they go, then they come in <laughs> and they're fine. And but yeah. you just seem like you're going to be okay. And yep. and the, having the focus, understanding what you have to do every day, actually making a to do yeah. list. I guess that yeah. is probably something that helps with with that type of stuff. And I am so yeah. glad you mentioned this Jordan Harbinger guy because I've been looking for somebody to listen to the for networking because that's mm. you, you have to have a you almost have to have a plan when you're an introvert like what you said you have to yeah. put it in your calendar or you're not going to do yep. it so i yep. i really dig that there's one last question that i ask almost sure. everybody that i think would be a good one for you what's the best and worst advice you got coming up being a comedian the best advice i got was there was a comic named Ron Shock who's since passed on, but he was a 30-year vet. He, I mean, you, did you ever see Ron Shock? He was out in your name. No, but I heard the name. Yeah. Yeah. So I was doing Snickers. Uh-huh. Did you ever do Snickers in Fort Wayne? No. Yeah, I was doing Snickers. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, It was a great club and a terrible club. Yeah. The audiences were amazing at that place. Yeah. So I was doing a weekend featuring for Ron Shock, and uh, we had we had been – going out for dinner after the shows mm. and and we'd done radio together. We'd gotten to know each other a little bit. And it was before the Saturday eight o'clock show, best show of the week, obviously. Mm. And I, I, we we're sitting at the table and I was looking at the crowd and I go, I said, it looks like a good crowd tonight. And he went, no, I was like, what? And he goes, no, he says, never. The crowd is never good. The crowd is never bad. You don't put any expectations on the crowd. You go up neutral uh-huh. and then find out what happens. Oh, yeah. He said, because if you think it's a good crowd, they're going to turn on you. Yeah. And if you think it's a bad crowd, they're going to turn on you. Yeah. It can go either way, no matter what they look like before the show. Right. And he said, go up neutral. That's and I really started good. doing that, putting myself yeah. in that mindset, go uh-huh. up neutral with no expectations of what that crowd is going to be. Uh-huh. And it made <laughs> so much difference, like, immediately. Yeah. My shows really improved quickly after that. Uh-huh. And they were pretty good before, but they really improved quickly after that because I wasn't either disappointed with that audience or surprised by that audience yeah. anymore. It was just they are what they are. And sometimes I still look at it an audience. I go, oh, Jesus, here yeah. we go. And, and oftentimes I'm correct about yeah. that. But <laughs> I try to go up neutral to yeah. do that. The worst advice... I don't know. I tend to forget things like that, uh-huh. but I've had, I've had people tell me usually the worst advice comes from not comics. It's, Hey, do you ever think about getting on that tonight show? You yeah. that would probably be a good thing. You get that kind of thing. <laughs> really? No, I never thought of it, Yeah, but I've had comics that are the type of guys who riff on stage Yeah, and they think everybody should do that. Yeah. Oh, why do you write your stuff down? Why do you write your stuff down? You shouldn't write your stuff down. It's not natural. There's that type of stuff that I've heard from a few people, Uh but any bad advice, I think I just tend to, I tend to forget it. Yeah. Did anybody ever tell you not to do music? Oh God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was taking, I was taking a workshop with Jeff Singer who was one, probably still involved with just for laughs in Montreal. Uh And it was, one of the worst workshops I've ever been to in my life. It was a, such a colossal waste of money. I couldn't believe it. It was literally 90 minutes of him going, don't call us, we'll call you. And uh, But he we was asking what we did. And I said, oh, I do a combination of stand-up and music. And he was like, no, you got to pick one. And I was mm-hmm. like, why? 
And he goes, because you got to pick one. You can't do both. And the guy said, have you ever seen Rodney Carrington? And he went, who? And I was like, um. wait a minute. <laughs> Hang on a second. How do you help run one of the biggest comedy festivals in the world? And you don't know the guy that's packing arenas all through the yeah. Midwest. It's not like he was a club comic at the time. No He'd doubt. already been on TV. He had his TV show. And and he was he was an arena comic at the time. I was like, how yeah. do you not know the guy? And so that's the kind of thing where I start to discount everything they say yeah, after that. If right. they're obviously missing a large piece of information like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've had people go, no, you got to pick one or the other. And I'm like, no, I don't. And it's a lot of times it's the traditionalists mm -hmm. that it's stand up and that's it. One night I did a show, I was headlining. The feature act was a ventriloquist and the opener was a juggler. Yeah. And I was like, I can hear nice. traditionalist head exploding yeah. all over the country right now. <laughs> and I'm like, use all the tools. I want to add a magic trick to my act so bad. Yeah. Something that I just, something that I just do, not I'm going to do a magic trick, but just something that happens and uh, people go, what the did he, what, what yeah. just happened? And then I just go on with the joke. Yeah. You know, I want to add something that use all the tools. Like I said, it's opera. We use all the tools that we've got available to us. So anytime somebody has told me pick one or the other, I just go, no, why would I limit what I'm putting out there? Right. As long as it's all me. And as long as it's um, a consistent voice uh -huh. that my audience knows is coming from me then why should I limit myself on that? I have, I am experimenting with an alternate voice that is showing up on a couple of my songs. Prince did a thing where he would have alternate voices like yeah. uh, on the songs, pink cashmere, something like that. He's got that higher pitched voice that yeah. he would use. He would actually, he would actually pitch it up. And that character was named Camille. And so mm -hmm. there are songs where Camille is the singer and he has four or five different characters that he uses on some of the songs. So I've mm -hmm. been experimenting with some of that. I put out a song called Binary Love, which is the, the singer on that is a guy named Earl Boberly, who is a, a, a soul singer from the 70s who had a couple of hits and uh -huh. then just fell under the radar. And, and I'm bringing him back on some of my some of my tracks. I was just there's a new song I'm working on where Earl's going to make a he's going to make a, a, a guest appearance. During That's the great. Yeah. And so what I did with that is I actually put the song out and I went out to my fan base. I said, I need a name for this guy. Uh -huh. I explained the Prince thing and. Most of my fans are Prince fans too, because yeah. I talk about them enough. And and I said, but you know how Prince does Camille. I need a song, a name for this deep voice soul singer guy that I've uh -huh. got. And so I did a contest where people submitted names, and uh, and Earl Boberly was the name that I like best. That's I picked great. one. My girlfriend and I went through all of them. And you gave and him a backstory uh, too. That's great. You know, I'm yeah. working on a backstory. Yeah. There's gonna be yeah. There's gonna be a whole thing. And uh, and then the prize was a vinyl copy of that song uh -huh. uh, because I wanted a vinyl copy for myself, and so I ordered one for the winner too. <laughs> Cool. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, I, I use all the tools. All yeah, the tools. Yeah, I, I I I got I've got mad respect for what you do. I'm really Thanks. glad you reached out because I I always deep dive into the people I talk to and I'm like, yeah, this guy's really hitting all the buttons. And I, I appreciate <laughs> that when people do that because some people they just want to rest on the art alone and these days yeah. you can't. You gotta have a hook, you gotta have a reason for uh, people to be invested in you and, and you're doing well yeah. at that. So yeah. I Thank appreciate you, you ha being on the show, Phil. Where can people find you to, first of all, you've got several albums out. You got the new special. Mm -hmm. Where can people find all that? So the hub for everything is philjohnsoncomedy.com. Okay. You can find at philjohnsoncomedy on most of the places. Twitter is at Roadside Phil. And, uh, but yeah, philjohnsoncomedy.com is where you can get all the stuff. My specials are all available for streaming, download, DVD, Blu-ray, audio CD. They're on uh -huh. audio streaming. I've got all the, if, if you want eight track, I could probably find yeah. it. Uh, but 
I don't want to. Yeah. Uh, and so I try to make it as easy to get to as uh, as possible. And that the new special, I do have a couple of specials on Amazon Prime. My last two are on there pretty from the back and be yourself unless you're an idiot. Those are uh-huh. both on on Amazon Prime. The new one will be on there soon. I'm still looking at which way I want to distribute that uh-huh. fuller it, it, into the wider world. But right now it's available on my website for 4K stream, uh, 4K, 1080 streaming mm-hmm. and uh, all that kind of stuff. But right. yeah, so that's really the place for anything. You can find me on all the audio platforms. Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, mm. YouTube Music. But just stick my name in there, and and the stuff will come up. I'm on all the places. If you just stick, if you just Google Phil Johnson comedy, yeah, and I will come up. Yeah, do yeah, not you just sure Google do. Phil Johnson. Yeah, <laughs> your SEO is very good. Thank you. The other, I've been, and it's because the other guy that comes up is an evangelical religious philosopher who I can't stand. Yeah, and so I'm constantly trying to beat that guy in the Google search. Uh. So Phil Johnson comedy, everything comes up. Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks so much for being on the show. This Thank has you. been a good one. I'm glad I got to know you. Thank you, Scott. Me too. I'm glad I got to know you as well. Great.